How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to the QuickBook Reviews podcast. Brighten your day with a book. Hello, my fellow bookworms. This is Philippa from QuickBook Reviews, author interviews and book reviews. How are you all doing? It's a Friday and I'm here. I know it's normally a Monday and here I am with a Friday special. Well, as we're approaching Mental Health Awareness Week next week, I thought it was only fitting to have a very special couple on that I wanted to talk to you about. But before that, I do have a tale to tell about what happened to me this morning. So I was just going along my usual run that I do in the morning and there was a sheep in the middle of the road. And uh, I have to say, often there is a sheep and I don't know what to do. But this time I thought, no, there's a lot of cars coming past at the moment, travelling far too quickly. Sheep might get hurt, person might get hurt. I need to sort this out. So I thought, right, I tried to sort of shepherd the sheep, move it one way, move it another. Wasn't having any of it. So then what what would you do in the circumstances? Well, I went on Facebook and said, there's a sheep in the road. As I was coming back, there was the farmer and I explained what had happened and that there are often sheep in the road that need assistance. And this farmer just looked at me. I mean, to be fair to them, they explained that there's a, a fence that's broken so the sheep keep coming out. But she gave me the telephone number that is like the hotline to the farm, the sheep headquarters telephone number. So now, whenever I come across a sheep, I can dial this number and immediately a SWAT team of sheep rescuers will descend and rescue the sheep. And I have saved that number as Debbie Sheep Farmer person. Yes, I mean, what what else was I supposed... I don't know. I think I should have come up with a better title. Debbie Sheep Farmer person. That's, uh, that's really just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Anyway, so if you've got a sheep problem, let me know because I've got the hotline to fix it. Anyway, enough about me and the goings on of my life. This really is a very special day today because when I heard about this book, it jumped out to me for all sorts of reasons. It's called A Very Modern Family by Carrie and David Grant. Now, 
so many of us have heard about David and Cary Grant. We perceive them, I perceive them to be a powerhouse, got it all sorted, but they have gone through some things. And this book is here to address all sorts of issues that people face. Now, let me read you the blurb because it describes it far better than I ever could. Carrie and David Grant have an extraordinary family story to tell. They have four children, one of whom is adopted, and all have come with a curveball. Mental health challenges, neurodivergence, trans non-binary identities, various sexualities, and they are a mixed-race family too. It is a reflection of the fact that society is changing faster than most of us can keep up with. The wider concepts of family and community are being deconstructed. There are those who desperately cling to the old and those who are desperate for the new to be accepted. How do we hold our families and communities together in unity? How do we create a society where all are included and none are oppressed? And before I say any more, let's hear from Carrie and David reading a little bit of the introduction. I think that day we had a sense that things would have to change, that we would be drawn down unfamiliar pathways, that we would be reshaped by our experiences. Neither of us could have imagined just how much. What we didn't see was the fight we would have to endure for our children to be understood, for them to be heard, and for their needs to be met. We didn't see the battles we would face on every front, grappling with inflexible systems outside the home, while trying to shapeshift in order to be the parents we needed to be inside the home. Nor could we have anticipated the division we would experience between us as we evolved into being all we needed to be for our children. We knew nothing of school refusal, self-harm, sitting by hospital beds on suicide watch, praying for our child to live. We knew nothing of child-on-parent violence or gender dysphoria. We knew nothing of the judgment or the exclusion or the isolation. We also knew nothing of the absolute joy that would be felt when one of our children achieved even the smallest wing. We knew nothing of the wild imagination of the neurodivergent brain or the wonder of their worldview. We couldn't imagine the sheer expanse of their creativity or the freedom that comes from living outside the expected normative constraints. We didn't know about the exquisite belly laugh-inducing family moments, nor the tears we would share with people who had walked through life alongside us and simply got it. We had no concept of the incredible family identity that would emerge, nor of how the power of love, tempered in the fire of challenge, would glue us together. This would all come later. Honestly, this book is one that I just want to get for everybody. It's in some places it's a hard read to hear what they've been going through, but it's essential. You know, my family, we've got, well, you know me, I've got ADHD, but the, the kids have got things as well. Things. Why do I say kids have got things? We're all different. And this book has helped me just take a step back on everything and just think a bit more clearly and look to the future and look at coming alongside. You know, you ask a child how they are, fine. And it says that in the book as well, and that's always what I get. And it's knowing 
how best to approach it. And, you know, my approach is always talk, 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 solve things immediately. And it's not always the right approach. Who knew that I wouldn't always have the right approach? Anyway, I've waffled. This book is brilliant. But what we really need to do is hear from Carrie and David. Well, it is such an honour to welcome to the podcast today, Carrie and David Grant, who's truly incredible book is called A Very Modern Family. Carrie, David, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you. It's lovely to be here. Well, let's start with the real basics. Can you summarise a bit about this book for us? The book really is a journey into the unknown, our journey into the unknown and how we navigated through learning about our children, uh, learning about neurodivergence, learning about the how ill-equipped society was to deal with our children and really in many ways how well equipped we were and and the journey we've taken and what we've learned and how it doesn't just apply to neurodivergent children it applies to everybody relating to their children and to people who are co-parenting relating to one another it's as much the journey that we took as parents and as people yeah, and it's an extraordinary book in terms of its honesty, its integrity and love. I just got this sense of love. I felt drawn in to read it. And, and there's no other book that I've come across like it. Did you really feel compelled to get this book out there? I think initially we felt compelled, like in all other areas of our lives, was just about giving people voice. And also how our own voices were so suppressed and oppressed and felt like you have no voice my child isn't spoken for nobody understands me and I just thought I need to get that on a page to help me to help my children and then you think that's going to help the wider community it's going to help people just like us and then of course the pandemic happened and you realize actually now just there are so many young people who are struggling with mental health issues the parents are feeling, and it's like we were, we were lost in, you know, going back 20 years. We didn't know how to manage this kind of family. And I think a lot of our parents who've got neurodivergent children or children with different intersections going on, health stuff going on, I think that we're, we're kind of a little bit ahead of the curve because we've had to look at this stuff. So it just, it felt like now was the time to write this book because it would reach not only our own community and give our own community voice, but would also have the capacity to reach perhaps people who are really struggling, parents who are going, hang on a minute, I thought I just had a normal kid, I did things a normal way. What is not working? Normal isn't working. Yeah. So what happens when normal doesn't work? We can't just double down and go, sorry, you will be the child I want you to be if your child is kind of going, actually, no. It's not about just, oh, do it a little bit more for another two years every single day and that routine will make sure your child turns out the way you want your child to turn out. That doesn't work for these types of situations. Yeah, I mean, I remember when I was pregnant with my first, with my daughter, I read that if you put special seeds on your cereal, they would be this incredibly clever child. So I was layering my cereal with all these seeds and it didn't end like that. You know, she's had so many struggles, but you don't necessarily realise to begin with. You don't, you're not able to take a step back and see the position very clearly. And it's only over time. And with books like this that I think people will get it sooner. I hope so. We hope so. Because, you know, 
It's not an instruction manual. The thing is, it's a journey, but it's a journey that touches on so many different areas of parenting, but also so many different experiences and situations that when we began to talk about it with other people with neurodivergent children, we discovered that there is a whole section of the community and of society, and as Carrie said, since the pandemic, that section's gotten larger, who are dealing with issues that there, there, there doesn't seem to be a template for. There doesn't seem to be anything that you can do or people that you can talk to unless you can find others. You know, we have we've created for ourselves an environment because of running, a, you know, a large group of people. We've created a space where you can speak and describe without having to explain. So David, I think, is referring to the fact that we run a support group for over 200 families. And uh, just in case people don't... Oh, yes, <laughs> just talking about, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah the group, large group isn't just our family. <laughs> no, that's not... <laughs> like, like, yeah, it's, it's a very large family. <laughs> there is six of us, but just, yeah, just, just realise that other people are going through similar things. And I, I assume also that it's... We just want to come out here with... Here's the opening sentence. You know, I really hope, in a way another 10 years this book will be out of date and there'll be even more stuff there'll be more magic you know I'm always I want to always I say this constantly I want to sit at the feet of people who know what they're talking about and I'm constantly learning you know we want for this to just be this is the opening gambit this yeah. is like okay let guys let's be a start a conversation start yeah yeah and let other people come with their ideas and let's go oh my gosh that's that would be great for these kids wow um you know it's an expansion on parenthood you know, there are still going to be traditionalists who say, you know, we just never like that in my day. Why don't they just sit down, shut up and do as they're told? All that narrative we know so well. What we're trying to say is this isn't a less than narrative. This isn't a liberal narrative. This is a narrative that works, that makes these children are complex. Mm. And we need to we need to be savvy about that. It's no good just putting your head in the sand and saying it doesn't exist. It exists and you have to you have to become that super parent your child needs. But it also now exists amongst so many more people within so many more families or within so many more child and parent situations. And if you feel throughout your parenting that somehow there is a norm, um, which there isn't, by the way, but, but we're made to feel that. And if you don't reach that mark, you're less than, then you spend your whole time trying to make your children something they're not and trying to make yourself something you can't be. It's almost like factoring in failure from the very beginning and setting yourself up to fail. So in a way, you know, I think the point that I was making about the group is everybody needs a place where they can describe without having to explain. And hopefully somebody might pick up this book and read it and go, somebody out there gets me. Other people have walked this walk. I have fellow travellers on what I thought was a totally isolated journey. And also at the end of each chapter, you have three points on what you've learned along the way and three questions for the reader. And I found those absolutely incredible because it really makes you think about what you've been doing and what you want to do. Was that something you were really keen to add to the book? Yeah, I think what we didn't want to do was go, this is what you should do. And I, I just don't, you know, I mean, that would go against every single element of our parenting. You know, uh, it's much more... It's it, it, when you're dealing with situations where people can, children can be very demand avoidant. The last thing you want to do is be telling people what to do. So, 
it was really how do you feel about that what how do you how have you grown in this way what's been your story because i think when people find their own voice they very quickly go oh hang on a minute i've got that right i'm not even doing it like you've just said wow that really works and once you know what works that's great i mean in a relationship where you're co-parenting or you've got other people helping you with your parenting it really helps to be able to say this is how this is what my child needs this is what works for my child this is that's the stuff you go to school with that's that's the stuff you go and talk to teachers about this is what works for my child because it's tried and tested sometimes we don't realize what what we're doing is right so it's not really about saying oh i've been doing that all wrong it's about recognizing those small wins that you've been getting right and then building on that and then sometimes you just get those revelation moments where you think you know the number of people that have read this book that we there's one section of the book where we say if your child is completely like melting down and they're completely escalating don't try and teach them a lesson yes. when they're in the middle of a meltdown don't don't become the coach in the middle of a meltdown this is not there is a time to coach but this is not the time to coach it's not it and i the number of people that have just gone oh no i'm, I'm embarrassed that is me in the middle of my child screaming and shouting i'm going you know, you shouldn't speak like this. You know, that's no way to say it. This, <laughs> just quit that. Just de-escalate. The key is de-escalate and strike while the iron is cold. Wait for that moment later. Absolutely. Also, you know, those those questions, I think you're, you're right about them. And I hope that they will make people think, okay, how do we do this? Because in a, in a previous generation, certainly when I was a child, almost everybody that I knew got patterns for making clothes. You know, like sewing. Making, yeah. To me, it's fabulous. What you would get was the pattern. The measurements you would determine yourself because you'd make them to measure to fit you. So hopefully those questions are simply the pattern and then each person reading them will go, well, this is the fabric. Here's the pattern. How does this fit our situation, our family, our unique challenges? We've got a pattern, but we have to make it to measure. And you're right. We all want to fix problems when your child is right in the middle of, of their meltdown. You want to just sort it. You want to get your fairy wand and make it better. And also what that doesn't do is it doesn't really empower our children to think for themselves in the same way as I'm saying about the questions at the end of the, the chapters are not there to tell people. Because if you just say to your child, right, do this. They're going to do it because you said. They might even do that for a couple of weeks because you said, but then they're going to very quickly lose that. They have to find that motivation for change themselves. Children like ours do anyway. So the motivation to live can't be just because I say this would be terrible if you didn't live. They have to find that motivation. They have to find that desire to live, to work, to breathe, to have friends, to... They have to find that within themselves and... We are there to, I love this idea of shepherding because shepherds don't whip the sheep. Shepherds have like that little hook that they just steer. My job is just to steer my child yeah. towards the right direction. And, you know, sometimes they go off in another direction. It's for me to go, oh, okay, you've just decided to go on the hill country. Okay, that's fine. You can, you can still live up the hill country. I might, I might now be needing to learn how to climb though because I'm not so familiar with that bit. Yeah. And so it, it's give and take. You know, I think we, that is seen as liberal. And that really annoys me because I don't think that's liberal. I think that is 
understanding the identity, the unique identity of every human being and valuing that identity. And it means that everyone has something to offer. It doesn't matter if your child's disabled. It doesn't matter if you're from, from a culture that isn't accepted. It means that everyone has value. Everyone has purpose. Everyone has something they can do in this world that makes a difference. My ambition is to give that kind of thinking to my child where I think we've got too into this thing of, I just want my child to be happy. Like, what does that mean? Like, what should I be happy? I mean, are you happy 100% of the time? I know I I'm not happy all the time. So the expectation on the child to perform for you is huge. What we're saying is, of course, I want my child to be happy, but I also want my child to know how to navigate depression. I want my child to know how to walk through discomfort, to sit with discomfort, to be resilient, to hold on to spaces that are difficult because that's life. And if we don't teach our children this, then that's not good. You know, I think, well, our children, at, you know, give them another 20 years at 35 and 40. If they hit a wall, they have got a whole armory in their backpack of stuff that they learned as a child. If your child has never faced anything because you parachuted in and you helped them and you carried them through, what are they going to do at 40 when they hit a wall? You might not even be there by then. So you can't pick them up. They're going to have to learn that resilience later on. So the one thing I think is our children develop slower but they are developing more fully. They are developing the whole armory of things that they're going to need to get through life. So if we exchange the desire for happiness with the desire for wholeness, then they'll work out their own happiness. And that just struck me so much when I was reading, because that's what I say to my kids. I just want you to be happy. And what am I doing? It's, I don't think I have enough resilience and it's a gift I wish I could give my kids as well. So yeah, that really struck me in the book I mean to be fair I think that there are definitely moments where we don't feel we have resilience the resilience how do we get through this you know I remember a time we, we'd been through so many times on suicide watch with one of our children it was so difficult and I remember one time just when something had kicked off with actually another child before we responded I said David we've got Let's just give one minute. One minute is not going to change anything at this situation. Take a beat. Take a beat. Let's just sit down on the edge of the bed. And we said, how do we do this well? How do we do this bit well? Because this is really, really blinking hard. How do we do this well? And in that place of real hardship, we're like, okay, let us stay. Let's let's try and stay unified. Yes. Let's let us be on the same page. Even, even, even if the you know, the kids are kind of ripping up with the book and come and get you, let us let us protect our page and be yeah. on the same. <laughs> it's hard. I pretend it's easy. I think at times when you've had really difficult periods of parenting, it's the most natural thing in the world to feel that that kind of shutdown in your own parenting. Like I just don't want to parent this child anymore. It's too hard, and you know I have to remember. And I think if you're particularly empathetic, like I am. I have to remember to climb back out of the skin of my child. Yes. You know, yes. it's like sometimes we embody their depression. You know, that saying you're only as happy as your least happy child. Exactly. Like, yes. You know, and that's hard when they're struggling because then you feel like, oh my gosh, this is on me. And sometimes I feel like I'm failing because if I could do something different, if I was somehow better, they would be different. And actually, you know, what they're going through is a part of their journey. I think we all forget we all forget our own journeys. Mm. We all forget that to arrive at where we are now, 
of the the part of the journey that we're on now, we had to go through deserts as well. We had to to come up against unclimbable rocks. We had to come up against things that we thought were insurmountable and actually needed support through it. I think sometimes we feel that if our children are in that space, that somehow we have done something wrong, that it's not just that this is life and you have to hold the space while they're walking in it. And I think that for us, the unity that we have has been forged by getting through things and not by getting out of them. And yet the urge is always to try and get your children out of them. You talk about in the book the relationship issue that I found really helpful about a third way. So, Carrie, you might have one view. David, you might have a, a different view. And instead of arguing about whose view is right, you, you come up with a third way. <laughs> if my husband's listening to this, he'll chuckle. That never occurred to me. A third way? What? So everybody's a bit of right and nobody loses? I mean, that's been very helpful as well. I think one of the things that does happen if you certainly if you are a parent who has a child who is struggling now that ch child might be struggling because of a, a a special educational need or disability or they might be struggling struggling because of a social emotional mental health reason those are the kind of official titles the sort of two pathways that you get put on as a child if you've got issues going on particularly that that affect behavior and I think the the thing that happens is that parents often get blamed it's and then the parents go actually the school's to blame my child's fine at home so what we do in instantly is we look for who is who's responsible who, who is and, and if we can't find anybody the easiest thing to do is to blame the person closest to you well it must be david's fault or it must be carrie's fault rather than just going actually can we just we're wasting energy precious oxygen here on working out whose fault it is let's just look at how we can sit with this hold the space for it wait for that moment where a bit of a revelation comes and you get strategies solutions yes we are looking for those things but a lot of what i would call that deep parenting is done in the held spaces is not about you need we need to find an answer it's actually just about being consistent holding the space giving being present being there for your child they children are genius they have so much within them so much potential so much yes. imagination yes. they can find this stuff so i think blame is just so unhelpful it's like shame it's like the appendix of your marriage it's so completely not going to help you at all taking account of of course taking account if you do things wrong we all do things wrong we know when we've done things wrong and that's what i think we're most of us would just go i'm going to own that i just that was really rubbish parenting i need to not do that again and I've got plenty of those moments, as has David. But blame and shame is is useless. A part wasted of, energy. I think part of the reason it's useless is because it's often a byproduct of the frustration or inadequacy we feel that we then take out our frustration and sense of inadequacy on the person closest to us, particularly if you're co-parenting, that is. And, you know, it's like, but somehow we conflate this wrong idea that identifying what caused the problem will give us the solution to the problem. And it won't. It will just give us somewhere to vent our frustration. And you talk about all four of your children in the book. And um, I've got two children. They're both so different. But I, I'm always surprised about that because I remember when I was doing sociology at school and then you do nature versus nurture. I just assumed that if you have a number of children... They are 
identical, but they're not. I was the same. No, they're not. And I think that part of that certainly, certainly, my my parenting journey was predicated around the fact that I I figured that fifty percent of Carrie and fifty percent of me would produce the same sort of you know with slight variations, but basically the same, rather than completely different people. I think yeah. the other thing is that the oldest child is the only oldest child. Mm. The middle child is the only middle child. The youngest. The adopted yeah. child in our family is the only adopted child. And I think everyone has a different... They're all coming at the family with a slightly different narrative and a slightly different view. And one, you know, one thing, for instance, a really good example of this is the needs of the child who doesn't have immediate needs. Mm. Those are the children to watch very often is that us as parents get completely sidetracked by the child that has got the neediest need and it puts huge pressure on there's normally one child in the family that just has to be the perfect child they are the role model they're the person that thinks i mustn't put any more pressure on my parents i can see they're struggling yeah. i must i don't know i mustn't have problems because all the attention's on this child and even when that pressure doesn't come it doesn't come from you to them they, they put it on it. themselves. They feel it. Whether you whether you expect that or not, they feel it. And we see this in our support group is quite often the child that has 10 years down the line that's got the biggest need is often the child that isn't neurodivergent. They're the child that finally goes to uni and goes, now I can relax, now I'm not living in that house and I am beside myself in, in bits. And that's another part of parenting. You then have to carry your child through or walk through with your child and but these are the realities of, of raising children in today's society, particularly post-pandemic when so many children are struggling. You know, all those parents that are just suddenly aware of mental health in their kids in the last two years, three years, they've suddenly become aware. You know, if they've got three children, all their attention is going to be on that one that they're worried about. And actually, yes, that, yes, it has to be, but... Don't give up the thinking about those other kids that are in the family because they will Absolutely. also have their own journey with that. Absolutely, it it no, it's like it's like throwing a pebble into a pond. You know the ripples go out, and you may be looking at the middle bit where the splash was, yeah. but actually everybody is touched by the ripple. Mm, that's a really good way of putting it. And talking about your children, the other thing that was so powerful about the book is that we hear direct from your children. We hear their voice. It must have been quite emotional for you to have them involved in it and to hear their words. We felt that it was really important to hear the voice of the children because it's their stories and it's our stories, but obviously we've we've had to ask their permission and got their permission to tell their stories. And we felt what better way of doing that than actually hearing from someone who is actually autistic or actually this or actually that, all their different variations. And... Mm. I think those voices really matter. I think there's a wonderful moment in parenting when you, I don't know, I had this yesterday actually, uh, so I can relate to it completely. Um, we share, we did Mother's Day. We do Mother's Day in a time, and we do all our celebrations, normally in times that other people aren't celebrating because it's really super hard for us to go to restaurants that are crowded. So we we went yesterday, Mother's Day. We're a couple of months late. Um, <laughs> It was, it was a couple it of was months. So Sorry, Had we gone on the day, it would have been, been rammed. It yeah. would have been awful for us. 
anyway, so they handed me their cards all one by one. It's so lovely. And then like then it's sitting there and they're looking for my reactions, which are always like to burst into tears. But <laughs> what was so lovely was they put in the two of the children who are the older two wrote who are the two that write in the book, funny enough, said, Mum, you're a world changer. Uh Mum, I really um I love the way your identity is amazing. And I thought, this is so funny because they are literally writing back to me everything I say to them. <laughs> I thought, you know, you're, I felt like, okay, my job here is done. Now, <laughs> now you're passing back to me, speaking to me in the same way that I've spoken to you for the last 28 years. Um, it's, hard to speak, <laughs> it's hard to speak affirmation if you don't feel affirmed. And so many children who feel they don't don't feel affirmed. So many parents who have children who feel they don't fit yeah. feel their parenting isn't affirmed. So true. And people take on a sense of a sense, I think, not just of hopelessness, but a sense of ab abject failure. And you know, it was Albert Einstein who said, if you judge a, a fish by how well it climbs a tree, you would think it was stupid. And sometimes, you know, we're looking at trees and we're holding these amazing dolphins up against trees. And, and let's find where our children belong. Let's find the pool for them. Because when you do, they feel affirmed. And when they're affirmed, they can affirm others because they feel they're worthwhile. You know, you can never feel you're worthwhile, I think, if you're if you're constantly feeling as though you're competing with people who are in a completely different sport to you, who live in a completely different world to you, with completely different needs, and sometimes sorry, you're being set up in a world where you're you're told to compete, absolutely that, that, compete in that sense, and you can't. So you fail from the off if that's the the criteria by which you can engage. And I think that one of the things about having the kids writing in the book that that I love is the fact that hopefully parents will find themselves in some of what we say, but hopefully they'll also find their children in some of what our children have written. And the problem is as well, we compare ourselves. You know, I look at photos on Instagram of friends, families, and they all look like they're having like a, a lovely picnic or doing something. Whereas my family uh, just, uh, we just couldn't. But I probably do the same. I probably get that one second of a photo that where it looks like we're doing OK and someone's not complaining about the feel of something that they're sitting on or that the food's mixed together and they can't deal with it. You're literally describing our lives there. <laughs> I like, ditto is all I can say to that, you know, and I think... Well, the person next door smells like wet sneezes. Oh, my gosh, like... Green <laughs> you know, oh, table, please. Yeah. <laughs> there is, like... There's always something, isn't there? But I, I think what you do when you choose to climb outside the box of this thing, this ideology we call normal, because it is an ideology... It's not, it's not the right way. It's an ideology. Yeah. When you say, actually, I don't really care about living in that box anymore. In fact, I don't, I'm, my own personal box, I'd quite like to smash it up so it doesn't exist anymore. If that, somebody else wants to live in a box and you're happy there, God bless you. I hope you have a lovely life. It's great. And I will come and visit you and knock on your box and say hello. But <laughs> I, 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 I like living outside the box. The outside the box works for us. It works for our family in our own way. We loved lockdown. Everyone looked out for each other. People cooked for each other. People went on walks together. We played with the dogs together. We championed one another. And I just think 
doesn't matter what the world thinks. Out there, there's a world that can be very cruel. But in this house, we will have peace and we will have a village that works for everybody. And and I think that that's all that matters. To me, that's all that matters. Being in the box and impressing the box and whatever the box demands, whatever this normal thing is, like who made that up anyway? Let's just forget about that. And in the book, we've spoken about you know, places that people can connect as well, because that's important, because there are people who don't feel they have a village. There are still people who, by the time they pick this book up, will not know until they've read that there are other people going through what they're going through. And we've given, we've given places in there where you can connect as well, because that's so important. That's It's, it's hard to feel that normal isn't a real when you feel like you are the only one who isn't what the others are and what the others call normal. And you realise actually there are some incredible parents out there who feel that they're inadequate. I've never met better parents than the SEND, Special Educational Needs and Disability Parents. They are the most extraordinary group of people. And if we truly had to live in their house for a week, if that isn't their experience, in your experience, you would be blown away by how incredible they are. Yeah. How attentive they are, how amazing they are, what strategies they have, how they've normalized absolute dysfunction in order to make their family work. You know, those people, they deserve a pat on the back. They deserve to be given a free holiday, literally. So they can't <laughs> give them some respite care because they do an amazing job with these kids. They're just amazing and, yeah. and, and should... Gosh, I can't believe that what we do is we gaslight them and tell them they're to blame. should be the opposite. We should be like hailing them and going, hang on a minute, you guys have got some keys here that the rest of us could learn from. And that is why this book really is for everybody because the parents that are the SEN parents, they are the Olympians of parenting. And if I want to learn about running and Usain Bolt's got a book, I'm going to buy a book by Usain Bolt. Not that I ever expect to be a sprinter or a record holder or be able to beat me kids even. But hey, if I want to learn about running, I want to... When you say beat your kids, you do mean meet them in a race. I mean meet them in a race. I don't mean... Yeah, yeah. just want to clarify. Just to clarify. Yeah. I don't mean I'm running after them to catch up with them, um, to beat them. No, and I want to learn from people who have been there and done it really well, even if I don't ever expect to be that. So it's it's for everybody. And I would say as well, the book is for everybody because someone might look at it and think, oh, well, I'm not a parent. Is, is this book for me? I would say maybe you're planning to become a parent in the future, then you absolutely have to have this book. But also you might support a family somewhere. You might be related yeah. to them or friends. You could be working in a school or involved in politics. I need to read this book. You know, it is a book for everyone just to be aware of what's involved. Actually, initially, the front cover had something about parenting on it, and it's now got the strap line is stories and guidance to nurture your relationships. And the reason why that was changed is because we realised that actually we're talking about race. You don't have to be a parent to be thinking about race or uh, neurodivergence or uh, LGBTQIA issues. Any of those are identity. You're as you will relate. Anyone that's involved in relationships, how we do conflict, how we do communication, how we think about identity is kind of woven through all, all the way through the book. So 
Yeah, I think it has a I think it has a bigger reach than that initial immediate audience of of parents of SEN children. Yes, I, it, literally everybody needs to be reading this book, I think, because you will be touching somebody. And also uh, looking at the neurodiverse side of things, you also very helpfully give pointers to look out for that. Might, you, you know, because before I started dealing with this in my family, I thought ADHD was just someone who stood up and ran around a room and couldn't sit down. Yes. And in and, and certainly and this is I don't want to make it too binary. But often, like for our girls with ADHD, or I say, oh, I mean, societally, girls with ADHD might have that same bouncing off walls, except they're not outside, they're, they're inside their head. So that that same level of energy is being exerted, but it's being exerted inwardly rather than outwardly. And when they're exhausted, you say, what are you, what are you tired for? You haven't done anything. Oh, man, inside of their head has been... Chaos. <laughs> It's a circus going on yes, inside yes. their head. <laughs> and, you know, so when you're at school and you can't learn, you've got not, you're being told you're distracted, you're not listening to the teacher. Because you've got that brain that's chaotic and bouncing against walls inside your brain there, it's very hard to find the, the little bit of space to take on the teaching. So it's how, and, and actually sometimes when you click your pen or when you... Um, have a particular what seat that you sit on that's a special sensory seat. Sometimes those simple things, or when you take learning breaks, sometimes those simple strategies change how you can learn. And it's really simple, non-monetary solutions. That's so often yeah. people think, we don't have the money for that. What, you don't have the money for a mindset change? Yeah, you do. Try and do it. And some people say, oh, don't put a label on it. But I think, crikey, even just in school alone, your child could get extra exam time if exams are their things. Yeah. They could get to sit somewhere else in school. All these. It's so important to put a label on it because then you start understanding and processing it. Carrie always says a label is only a problem if you've got a problem with the label. Oh, and that's why she's a wise woman. Yeah, she really is. The fact of the matter is what some people call a label to many people who are living with the one being labeled will be an explanation. Mm -hmm. And an explanation changes everything because an explanation makes you aware that actually this is normal for them. And so let's now begin to engage with whoever we need to engage with to make, you know, reasonable adjustments. It's because because equal, you know, a level playing field doesn't mean we all start at the same place. It means, you know, somebody who can't run as fast has a head start. And what we're doing is we're we're disregarding the fact that so many people with invisible disabilities have run a marathon just to get to the starting line, just to turn out. I think also, I mean, we're viewing it there very much through the parents understanding. But if I know if I talk to our children I know that they would say their diagnosis made a total life-changing impact yeah. for them because I think many children like ours grow up, they know they're different. They go into school and they're like, hang on a minute, I, I was fine before I went to school. Now I'm looking at all these other kids and I'm not like them. And when you know you're not like someone, the others, it can make people feel like they're less than. And when you feel like you're less than, that impacts your self-esteem and that impacts your ability to learn even because you're a, you become completely sidetracked by 
I haven't got any friends. What's going to happen at playtime? They're not going to play with me because I don't know how to play that game that they've all learned really quickly. Or I don't, I just don't fit because I don't like the same music as they like. You know, I'm obsessed with Peppa Pig and they're all, they're all onto One Direction or something, you know. And so actually fitting in, if you understand, actually it's because your brain works differently. There are many, many people on this planet who think just like you in that different way. And you're not in the neuro-predominant that's out there. Yeah. Once you can understand that, it gives you an explanation of yourself and it means you're not less than, you're different. You're different too. And that's you. Oh, absolutely. I think as well, we all look, certainly I did with myself, with my diagnosis and my kids. I was just thinking, well, if we get to the point of diagnosis, then we can move forward. But actually what I wasn't prepared for was it's quite even when you've got the diagnosis, it throws you yes. and it takes you a while to find yes. your rudder and steer yourself. That you're absolutely right, Philippa. I couldn't be, agree with you more. I've lost count of the number of people over the last few years who I have said to them, have you ever had uh, any assessment for autism? And they've gone, no. And I've been like, well, and they said, do you think I should? I'm like, yeah, I think you should. And they've gone and got their diagnosis. The first year is, well, initially it's euphoria. Then it's followed by a period of what on earth was that about? Late diagnosis particularly is really difficult because you have to go back and you realize all those times you were bullied at school and you thought it's just because you were rubbish. Or at work. Or at work. Or, mm. yeah, exactly, actually, absolutely right, even at work. they That was because of you being autistic and people not getting you or your ADHD meant that this is how you related to the work. So there's a grief for the years that you've lost. There's, there's, there's also that feeling like, what if I'm judged? This is why we need more positive ideas about what it means to be neurodivergent. Because what happens is most of us, like you just mentioned there, you've got a diagnosis. You probably put the word into the internet and I bet nine out of 10 things you would read were negative. And I would like that to change because I see our children as being absolutely incredible. They're, the things, the way they think is so amazing that I, I, I want to be like that. That's that's just so imaginative. Right. And, and, and so there are many benefits to to being neurodivergent. And I think we, and I'm not going to call them superpowers because I think that's not helpful, but there are benefits for sure. Thinking differently, there are many challenges. Of course there are, and we know that. And that's what draws people to assessment. But there are also benefits and assets to thinking differently that are, you know, the people that change the world very often are those people who think differently and who are prepared to be blunt and say, this is wrong. And also, can I say this, that... Um... You know, when you get a diagnosis as an adult, one of the things that it does do, I believe, is it makes sense of something that, you know, as a child, you know that you don't fit. Mm. There are so many people that I've met who have gone through their whole lives feeling like they don't fit. It's not something that they articulate unless they're speaking to somebody they feel safe with, because you don't say, I don't fit, if you're desperate to fit. Mm -hmm. um, and the understanding that I don't fit always comes along with it. It's accompanied by, you don't fit in, you're not like us, rather than you don't fit in because you're you, and and you being you is all right, and you, you, fit, you not fitting in means you stand out, and standing out is all right, yeah. and being different is all right. Finding compassion for yourself. You know, I know that I mean, David is not diagnosed, but he has many ADHD traits, and I know that... I scored 100% on an online... <gasps> 
done. Hundred the gold star. Uh, yeah, exactly. I won the race for ADHD. I did. Um, I don't need you saying for that. <laughs> you know, I I see David when I first met him in his late twenties. You know, running for a train. Oh, I've missed the train. Oh, I've missed it because I just didn't couldn't find my ticket. Oh, and I haven't got my ticket because I can't see properly because I've left my glasses somewhere. I need to go home and get my glass. Oh, I can't get my glasses. I've forgotten my door key. And I think that that David used to beat himself up yeah. with why can other, what is it? Why is it all these people out there can do this stuff? Why are they so good at life? And why am I so rubbish at this? And I think that what happens when you have a diagnosis is that it helps you to go, go a bit easier on yourself, will you? You've got ADHD. You are doing really well. You are actually doing brilliantly and in an hour's time when you're at the place you were meant to be at you were going to have the best imagination in the meeting you're about to go in so it will have its benefits if you can get onto the train on time it will have its benefits it's the getting in and the getting on and all the little bits of mechanical stuff that need help that that, so even someone like david needs help with thank god he's got me who's very sort of organized really organized really together however i would say this that that thing about their, you know, not being able to do the things that people can do that you just think this is so ordinary, this is so normal. And a lot of people who are parents will be going, why can't my child do this? But then a lot of people are parents, I couldn't do that either. And sometimes people begin to recognize things in themselves through their children. Yeah. Getting their own diagnosed on, this was me. me. So perhaps, actually, there's an explanation for this. I'm not just quirky. I'm not different. I'm not inadequate. I'm, I'm, I'm me. And actually, my brain is wired in a different way. And let me get used to that. And that's what this book does. It just, yes, it's it's painful to read, to hear what you and the family have gone through at times, but it's also powerful because... It shows what a family can be and it gives us the tools to take this further ourselves. Yeah, I really hope so. I hope it does. There's so many levels at which I really hope this book helps people. And, mm. and I think I think one of them even is just defining success. You know, I think we just go, well, let's look at the kids. Are they, you know, let's, they've still got problems, haven't they? Your kids have still got issues. Like, yeah, they have, but they've got tools. And they've got ideas and they see the world in a different way to you. And um, and so I think even that, if it helps people to not feel like me and my family are a failure. Yeah. You know, our family, yeah, if you read that book, there's a lot of stuff that people might call failure. But you know what? In our world, they're great. Our family's brilliant. Absolutely. Because it's a process and at any given time it can look catastrophic and other times and often does. And at other times, it can look idyllic, and it isn't actually. It's somewhere in between. It hovers between points like everybody else's life. Let's come away from this thing that says the quality of your parenting is judged by the happiness of your child. Because the happiness of your child, the contentment of your child, the satisfaction in life of your child or other is determined by who your child is. Yeah, and particularly if you've got child children that have been fostered or adopted, you're looking all being through any kind of trauma. Actually, there are many parents who, you've, you know, there's trauma somewhere in the family. And that impacts how our children are growing up. It impacts how they relate to one another. And 
They can be traumatized by school. They can be traumatized by death in the family, all kinds of stuff that can be going on in families. And so, and, and lots of it, you can't, you can't stop happening. It's just going to happen. Life is going to happen. And I think that's, I think it's this idea, we have this idea that, you know, what about if that's a good family, a family that's gone through all that stuff and still ragged around the edges and still sitting in the mud, but actually working it out and loving each other, that to me is a success. That's a great family. By other people's standards, maybe not, but I'm not judging by other people's standards. This is just us. And in our little village, in our house, it really works. Well, and, and the book works. It's extraordinary. But before I tell everyone to stop listening and, and go and get the book, I have the final question to ask you, which I ask everybody I interview on this podcast. So prepare yourselves. Okay. The question It's a very important question on this podcast. OK, <laughs> it's what biscuit was powering the writing of this book? What was your biscuit of choice? Oh, my gosh. I know exactly the biscuit and I'm trying to remember what it's called. Are they called Belkin? where it's chocolate, but it's more chocolate than biscuit. There's a little, There's a little biscuit. long biscuit and it has a thick chocolate. So really you're just eating a bar of chocolate. Yes, Belkin. And then with biscuit in it. And with biscuit in it. And then you're telling yourself, I'm only eating a biscuit, not a bar of chocolate. But actually, when you've eaten all 14, because I know there are 14 in the pack. When you've eaten, <laughs> you've eaten, you got me on a question here, Philip, actual podcast on its own is me and Bis. like why do they why are you meant to share them why does it say family pack it should just say mother pack yeah, <laughs> yeah. You, no, or even or even more specific carry back yeah <laughs> why not uh, david do you have a biscuit of choice uh yes but i never get to eat it <laughs> because carrie gets up before me in the morning no let me tell you David's is che those chewy cherries that are sometimes made by Haribo and sometimes not because he gets the cheap pound version down the local shop. Not as nice as the, the, the real. They thing. are everywhere. Every single place. I open his pants drawer, there's a packet of cherries. I open the... Not the ones with all the sugar on them. No, not the, no, not the sour ones. Regular cherry ones that will actually break your jaw if you eat too many. Oh, let me tell you. In, in, the, in the car, the glove box full of cherries. Under the seats in the car full of cherries. The boot. Full of cherries. Pants drawer full of cherries. Sometimes I have to get in the car and drive for miles because they don't have any near me. He's terrible. So, <laughs> so I'm powered by Haribo cherries. Cheap one pound version. Or the cheap one pound version, which I thought, oh, this is awful, but it's better than nothing. <laughs> this is the stuff of legends. This is absolutely <laughs> incredible. This <laughs> is what we're here for. Yeah. Oh, well, if there were biscuits in the house, I wouldn't have to go looking for the cherries. I see. <laughs> so when you get diabetes, she you ate too many cherries, it'll be my fault. I'd I eat all the biscuits. 100%. <laughs> no, I, there's a book I can recommend to you, David, where you, you learn not to blame other people for things. <laughs> is, is it called A Very Modern Family? <laughs> Funny you should mention that. Yeah. Carrie and David Grant, you have been just incredible to talk to and everybody literally needs to go out and acquire a copy of A Very Modern Family. Carrie and David, thank you so much. It's been a joy. Thank you. Thank you so much. What a lovely interview. Wow. Well, that was really inspirational and uh, I need to go away and reflect on that a lot because still more has come out to me as I've talked to them. 
about what I'd like to focus on with the family and myself. And I'm going to go back into the book, I think, and just reflect on it. But yeah, I thought it's incredible. A very modern family, Carrie and David Grant. I really hope you get as much from it as I have. And that's me done. I'll be back on Monday with my usual nonsense. And I just hope that all is well with you. And if it's not all well, that, that you've got someone to be with, to talk to. And just look after yourselves and I'll see you very soon. Take care now. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Quick Book Reviews podcast. That's enough books, said no one, ever. See you again soon. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.